0: Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome to the third episode of Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast. This is a history of non-league football, from the time when all football was non-league to the present day, when the top end of the game is practically indistinguishable from the lower reaches of the football league. This is a love story, the story of a part of the game which is kept alive by the dedication of those who will not see it die. But it's also a story of corruption, greed and exclusion, and of clubs that live hand-to-mouth lives without such luxuries as fat television contracts and exorbitant ticket prices to fall back upon. When both professional and amateur football returned at the end of the summer of 1919, Britain was a very different place to when the game had been forced to stop four years earlier. The country had lost almost a million people to the First World War, whilst a further 228,000 people had been killed by two waves of Spanish flu, the second of which was considerably more deadly than the first. But with the end of the war came changes throughout society, and this extended as far as football. The Football League was about to change forever, and these changes would reverberate down through the non-league games while the amateurs were still hoping to grab back a little bit of the power they'd once held. This is the story of non-league football between the wars. By 1919, slowly but inexorably, the Football League had pulled clear of the Southern League. Twenty years earlier, it was perfectly plausible to say that the two competitions had been something approaching rivals. The Football League being for the Midlands and the North, and the Southern League for London and the South. Southern League clubs reached three FA Cup finals in a row between 1900 and 1902, with Tottenham Hotspur beating Sheffield United to win the competition in 1901. But after a truce was finally agreed between the two in 1910, the Football League cemented its superiority over the Southern League. Mergers had been proposed in 1907, 1909 and 1911, being soundly rejected in 1907, failing to meet the required majority in 1909 and then rejected again outright in 1911, by which time there was no need for the Football League to consider a merger.
0: Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too perhaps may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Everywhere in Britain you'll find boys playing football, anywhere will do, on public playing fields where the young players learn the discipline of the game and the laws that govern it, in school yards and even in the streets.
1: And when football resumed after the First World War, expansion was on their minds. The Football League had been pragmatic in their decisions over who to allow to join in the past, Their original entry requirements in 1888 were that a club should represent a town or city of more than 60,000 people, and that only one club per city should be admitted. With the league being based in the Midlands and the North, London didn't join in with Woolwich Arsenal until 1894. Throughout the first decade of the 20th century, the Football League made its decisions over who to allow in on a commercial basis. Chelsea, for example, were allowed to join in 1905 without having kicked a ball because they had an extremely large stadium in London. Today it looks like franchising, but it was more contemporarily considered taking the game into new markets in order to make it a truly national league. One area in which the Football League was keen to grow the game was West Yorkshire. The great rugby league schism of 1895 had divided the game into two. Rugby union was the middle class game, but rugby league was the working class game, and had become particularly successful and popular in West Yorkshire. Bradford City were formed in 1903 after the Manningham Football Club decided to switch codes from rugby league and change their name. They were parachuted into the league as Chelsea were two years later without having played a game. Leeds City were formed in 1904 and were voted into the Football League a year later, without having even played the previous season in a league competition. Bradford Park Avenue were formed in 1907, spent one season in the Southern League and were then voted into the Football League. Huddersfield Town were formed in 1908 and spent just two seasons in non-league football before being voted in. And all of this was happening through the re-election system. If the Football League wanted to be a truly National League though, it still had one gaping blind spot. At the end of the 1914-15 season, there were 40 Football League clubs, in two divisions of 20. In the first division, there were just two London clubs, Chelsea and Tottenham Hotspur, and they'd just occupied the bottom two places in the table. In the second division, there were a further three, Arsenal, Clapton Orient and Fulham. And on top of this, Bristol City were the only representatives outside of London anywhere south of the Midlands. Small wonder then, that the Southern League, given an almost free run across the affluent south, was so successful throughout its opening years. The game's growth in the south of England had been slower to start, but had caught up pretty rapidly. By 1914, it looked rather as though England had two semi-national leagues, the Football League for the Midlands and the North, and the Southern League for London, the South and the West. The answer to this conundrum was straightforward. The Football League made its move in 1919, inviting the entire top division of the Southern League to join, with one club, Cardiff City, being parachuted into Division 2, and the rest, alongside relegated clubs, making up Division 3. It was a momentous event. For the first time, the Football League could justifiably call itself a National League for England, with 66 clubs. Portsmouth were the winners of the 1920 Southern League title on goal average from Watford. The drawback of allowing all these Southern clubs in, however, was the belief that any imagined balance of power had now swung too far in the opposite direction. So it was that the following year the Football League introduced another third division made up of a further 20 clubs from the north of England. These two third divisions would be known as Division 3 North and Division 3 South with clubs in the Midlands shuffling between them as required according to promotions and relegations. The nature of non-league football in the Midlands and the North however was considerably more piecemeal than in the South. There was no single division that could simply be absorbed as the top division of the Southern League had been a year earlier. The Football League ended up taking a bit more of a gamble with the clubs that they selected for Division 3 North than they had with the Southern section a year earlier. The Lancashire Combination provided three clubs. The Northeastern League provided four. The Midland League provided five clubs. The Central League provided six and the Birmingham League provided two. Two years later, a further two clubs would be added to Division 3 North, raising the total number of clubs to 88. It wouldn't be until 1950 that an extra two clubs would be added to each of the two third divisions, bringing us to the 92 with which we're so familiar today. the semi-professional leagues below the Football League reshuffled and carried on very much as before, albeit with their status diminished, especially in the case of the Southern League. What though of the amateurs? The expansion of the Football League to 88 clubs seemed to indicate that the balance of power within the game was swinging decisively away from the game's founders, after all. Well, the amateur game remained vibrant. In the South... The Isthmian League had been joined by the Athenian League in 1912, which soon came to be considered its feeder league. Whilst in the north of England, the Northern League continued to flourish, and amateur clubs continued to hold their own against semi-professional clubs and professional reserve teams across the various county leagues that made up the hodgepodge of non-league leagues across the Midlands and the north-west of England. And on top of this the FA Amateur Cup continued to steadily grow in popularity, although it was still decades from its peak. And the amateurs continued to hold sway within the FA, even though the game seemed to be heading inexorably away from their influence and towards a more commercially fixated future. This manifested itself most clearly in the home nation's increasingly strained relationships with FIFA throughout the 1920s. The Football Association first joined FIFA in 1905, a year after its formation. But even though they were given four of the eight places on the International Football Association's board, the committee that decides the changes to the laws of the game itself, it was an uncomfortable relationship from the off. The British associations of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales opted to leave after World War I when FIFA chose not to exclude those who were part of the Central Powers during the war. The British Association's stance, however, had changed by 1922, and in 1924 they rejoined. Meanwhile, the British Olympic Association had been fighting against broken time payments, that's to say money being paid to amateur athletes to compensate them for having to skip work to compete. At the 1925 Olympic Congress in Prague, the British had made an amendment that concluded governing federations should define amateur status for their sports, but only in accordance with the definition of amateurism accepted by the Olympic Congress. In 1928, Switzerland proposed to FIFA that in certain circumstances, broken time payments should be allowed, and FIFA accepted. The FA resigned from FIFA in protest against the proposal. At the 1930 Olympic Congress in Berlin, Belgian delegates proposed that for each sport, the definition of amateur status be left to its international federation. The British Olympic Association argued for a common definition of amateurism and argued that broken time payments were against the Olympic ideal with the British FA still opposed to any perceived watering down of the definition of amateurism, the ostracism continued. The home nation stayed out of FIFA until 1946. The establishment amateurs had been fighting these fights since the 1870s, opposing any form of payment being made to players whatsoever, and the result of their influence in 1928 was that the home nations all missed out on the possibility of playing in the first three World Cups. One particular acolyte of the amateur game, however, was to make a concerted effort to push it back to the forefront of the national consciousness in the second half of the 1920s. R. W. Stowley was a relic from the founding years of English football, when the amateurs ran the show. He had represented Cambridge University in England, and had latterly been involved with the amateur club Ealing AFC, whose major achievement to that point had been beating Norwich City on the way to an appearance in the FA Amateur Cup final in 1904. Stowley looked enviously north to Scotland, where Queen's Park continued to play an active role in the Scottish Football League. They were the league's only amateur club, and had even been protected from being relegated into the Scottish 2nd Division until 1922. Even when they were relegated, they were promoted straight back and stayed in the Scottish 1st Division until after the Second World War. They played their home matches at Hampden Park and had even made two appearances in the English FA Cup final during the 1870s. Stoley's plan was simple. He wished to create a club to represent the whole of the amateur game in England and get it voted into the Football League. With yet another nod to the classical background that so many of the prominent amateurs had in common, he chose to name his club Argonauts FC, for the mythical band of men who accompanied Jason in his quest to find the Golden Fleece. The club was to be based in London, and Stoley's original plan was to base them at the White City Stadium, which had been the venue for arguably the amateur's greatest moment, their first football gold medal at the 1908 Olympic Games. He made no secret of the fact that, despite being based in London, they would represent the whole of the amateur game, and Stoley wrote to every existing member of the Football League to notify them of his plan. The loudest objections came from Queen's Park Rangers and Brentford, into whose territory Argonauts may be parachuted. Both of these clubs struggled for attendances at time, and there was a real danger that a large amateur club could seriously affect their well-being. In response to this, Stowley amended his plans and confirmed that the new club would instead play its home matches at Wembley Stadium. In spite of these teething problems, however, Argonauts had one very influential supporter. By the late 1920s, Athletic News was past its prime. Founded in Manchester in 1875, it was a sporting newspaper that focused on amateur sport and at its peak in 1919 had a circulation of 170,000 readers. It championed the cause of the Argonauts, calling upon the FA to encourage amateur clubs to release their best players to join the cause. They reasoned that increased interest in amateur football could stem the tide of public schools from switching to rugby, something which had begun in earnest with the codification of Rugby Union in the 1880s. With such support, the club's committee was confident that Argonauts could take the place of one of the ailing sides at the bottom of the football league. When the end of the season came, the clubs met to decide who should stay in the league for the following season and Argonauts did exceptionally well. Torquay United and Merthyr Town were re-elected but Argonauts fell just 11 votes short of replacing Merthyr. If they'd taken six votes from them, they'd have been in. The club reapplied the following year but their moment had come and gone. The 3rd Division South team seeking re-election, Exeter City and Gillingham, were reasonably well-established clubs, both having a rare bad season, and Argonauts received just six votes. Considering this collapse in support, it is perhaps surprising that they applied again in 1930, still without having ever played a single match. On this occasion, Merthyr Town were voted out of the league, but they were replaced by Thames Association rather than Argonauts, who didn't receive a single vote. Thames Association only lasted a couple of seasons themselves before folding, unable to build much interest in going to watch 3rd Division South football at the 120,000 capacity West Ham Stadium in London's Custom House. Argonauts didn't apply again after 1930, and the name is now used by an amateur club in Bristol. R.W. Stowley did, however, get to see his dream of club football at Wembley take place after all. During the 1930-31 season, Ealing AFC, the club that he was involved with while experimenting with the Argonauts, played eight matches there. Where, though, did Stowley go wrong? The fact that Argonauts came within a dozen votes of getting a place in the Football League would seem to indicate that professional clubs were not averse to the concept of the amateurs being involved. To an extent, the state of civil war that had existed at the start of the century, which came to a head with the formation of the Amateur Football Alliance in 1907, had dissipated by the end of the 1920s, though it would take a further five decades for the FA to formally end the distinction between amateurs and professionals. The brief dispute with QPR and Brentford would also appear to be a red herring. Stoley demonstrated a desire to appease these clubs, by moving Argonauts to Wembley. It's likely that the biggest single factor was the fact that the Argonauts hadn't played a single match. Had they demonstrated on the pitch that they were a strong enough team to join the Football League, it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that they could have taken the half-dozen votes that they needed from Merthyr Town to secure a place in the Football League. From its formation in 1905, with just six clubs, the Isthmian League grew at a slow pace. It expanded to 10 in 1908, and then to 11 in 1911, 12 in 1919, and 14 in 1921. The successful sides of the 1920s are a mixture of the long-forgotten and clubs which continue as stalwarts of the non-league game to this day. St Albans City, who joined the league in 1922, won it three times, with Ilford and Dulwich Hamlet winning it twice each. The other two clubs that won the Isthmian League during the 1920s are no longer with us. The 1925 champions were London Caledonians, who played their home matches in Holloway, and were not only founder members of the Isthmian League, but were also its first champions in 1906. They played on until 1939, but did not re-emerge after the end of the Second World War. A similar fate befell Nunhead, who were the champions in 1929 and 1930, and had England cricketer Dennis Compton play for them in the mid-1930s. They formally folded in 1949. In 1929, the civil service left the league and were replaced by Kingstonian but there would be no further changes to the make-up of the Isthmian League before the start of the Second World War. Kingstonian won the league twice in the 1930s, but the most successful Isthmian League team of that decade would be Wimbledon, who lifted the league title four times, with Leytonstone winning the last two titles before the outbreak of war. Meanwhile, the mass exodus of its clubs into the Football League in 1920 left the Southern League in something of a quandary, The league had been formed with a second division in 1894 but they couldn't help themselves but tinker with it. In 1897 Division 2 was split into London and South West sections for a year and in 1908 it was split into A and B sections. Again it reverted back after just a year. Losing its entire top division however hit the Southern League hard. The 1921-22 division effectively became a reserve league, with eight of its 13 clubs being reserve teams for football league clubs. Its second division became a Wales section for three years, before the entire league split into eastern and west divisions. This would remain the league's look until 1933, when a third central section was added mostly consisting of clubs already in the eastern or western sections, to give clubs, who didn't of course have the FA Amateur Cup to break up their season, extra competitive fixtures. In 1936, the regional sections were merged, and a midweek section was added to give teams additional fixtures again. This would remain the case until after the Second World War, when it would return to a single division. As late as 1939, a 23-team Southern League featured 11 reserve teams from the Football League. The situation in the south of England was fairly straightforward. The Southern League for professional and semi-professional clubs the Isthmian League for Amateur Clubs in the southeast, with other leagues in other parts of the region. In the Midlands and the North though, the situation remained considerably more convoluted. The Midland League had a particularly proud history. Founded in 1889, only one year after the Football League, the Midland League was the second league for professional clubs to be formed. 11 clubs participated in its first season, 1889-90, four of whom, including its first champions, Lincoln City, would go on to join the Football League. In the early days of the Midland League, a number of the champion clubs were elected into the Football League, and in return, league clubs who failed to be re-elected were often placed in the Midland League. Lincoln City and Doncaster Rovers both had a number of spells in both the Football League and the Midland League. With larger professional clubs becoming stronger and stronger, these clubs started to look to place their reserve teams in the Midland League, Derby County being the first in 1894. Within less than a decade, more than half of the membership of the Midland League was made up of reserve teams. Along with most other leagues, the Midland League closed down for the duration of World War I. When football resumed in 1919, the Midland League began to take on a different look. Three clubs, Chesterfield, Halifax Town and Lincoln City, joined the Football League when that organisation expanded to form a third division north and the reserve sides of Football League clubs gradually left. More Midland League clubs progressed through to the Football League as well such as York City in 1929 and Mansfield Town in 1932. Regional outlier Scarborough won the title in 1930, but the division remained dominated by reserve teams throughout the following decade, with the reserves winning every single league title until Shrewsbury Town and Scunthorpe and Lindsay United in 1938 and 1939 respectively. The league was joined by a junior counterpart, the Birmingham and District League, in 1922. The most famous of the multitude of leagues that spread across the north of England was the Northern League. The Northern League was another of many leagues formed the year after the Football League. In its first season, it initially consisted of 10 clubs that were a mixture of professional and amateur organisations. And during its early years, it included clubs such as Newcastle United, Middlesbrough and Darlington, amongst others. In 1905, the league split into two divisions, one professional and one amateur. The next year, however, the Northern League made the decision to abolish the professional division and restrict itself to amateur clubs only. This was hardly surprising. The Northern League dominated the FA Amateur Cup after its introduction in 1893, winning the competition six times in its opening eight years, and three of the last tournaments before the outbreak of war in 1915.
0: Men in workshops and factories all over Britain spend their Saturdays and Sundays playing for their works teams, and many business firms nowadays provide special playing fields in their grounds for the use of their workers. Legend has it that many years ago, whenever a first-class football club in the North or Midlands wanted a player, the club manager just went to the nearest coal mine and shouted down the pit shaft. Sure enough, up would come a pit lad good enough to play in any first-class side. Nowadays, club managers seeking talent don't go to the pit. Instead, they go to the local football ground. Such men as Major Frank Buckley, manager of Notts County, and Eric Brooks, the well-known Manchester City and England winger, always ready to help young players, are only too willing to give advice and guidance to local colliery teams. And we'll watch many a game, hoping to find among these keen, vigorous youngsters just the young players who, with care and coaching, can become professional footballers.
1: It was a competitive league as well. Unaffected by the expansion of the Football League on account of its strict amateur status, seven different clubs won the league title in its first nine years after football resumed following the war, and it also provided further winners of the Amateur Cup, though the 1930s were largely dominated by the Isthmian League in that particular competition. The situation across much of the rest of the north of England, however, was somewhat more convoluted than this. A merger of leagues in 1919 brought about the Cheshire County League, which stretched well beyond Cheshire, and as soon as it started for business it had a space to fill. When Leeds City were expelled from the Football League in October 1919, member club Port Vale were offered their place. When this was accepted, Tranmere Rovers moved over from the Lancashire Combination League to take Vale's place. Although its early years were dominated by the reserve team of football league clubs, the Cheshire League did find an identity of its own in the end. Wigan Athletic, formed as the latest in a long line of failed clubs in that town, won the league title three years in a row between 1933 and 1935. By the time that war broke out in 1939, there were still five reserve clubs playing in the league though by this time it was also home to familiar non-league names such as Altringham, Runcorn, Witten, Albion, Northwich Victoria and Staleybridge Celtic. The Lancashire combination was similarly peppered with reserve teams, but only one of these, Nelsons in 1925, was able to win the league. The 1930s were dominated by four clubs, Lancaster Town, Chorley, Darwin and South Liverpool, who won all nine league titles from 1930 on. South Liverpool won the last three in a row before the outbreak of the Second World War. The Yorkshire League was a slightly lower standard, with Selby Town being its most successful team of the interwar years, with three league titles. The Central League, meanwhile, started as a mixture of non-league teams and Football League reserve teams in 1911. But this league lost all of its clubs that weren't reserve teams to Division 3 North 10 years later. It continued as a reserve team only league for clubs in the Football League and does so to this day. The Northern Counties League were formed in 1906, shortly after the Northern League's decision to turn completely amateur. With strong Football League teams in the Northern League nearby though, the Northern Counties League remained dominated by Football League reserve teams until they had to withdraw the competition in 1958 on account of the formation of the Football League's 4th Division. Blythe Spartans, Horden TW and South Shields were the only teams to win the league that weren't Football League reserve teams between 1919 and 1939, alongside Darlington and Carlisle, both of whom would soon be elected into the Football League. The non-league game in the northeast of England, however, would be dominated by the Northern League until the curtailment of the amateur game in the 1970s. By the end of the 1930s, though, the non-league game still looked very much as it had a decade earlier. The Football League's expansion to 88 clubs had a seismic effect down through the divisions, with everybody having to recalibrate. It would take the Southern League which lost its entire top division in one hit in 1920, a long time to fully get its identity back. Despite the ongoing industrialisation of the game throughout this period, though, the amateur game remained powerful. The Football Association retained its links with the armed forces and the public schools, which ensured that professionalism would remain on a short leash for some considerable time and the amateur game remained the dominant form of non-league football in London, the south of England and the northeast of England, four-figure crowds were commonplace. The coming of war for the second time in a generation this time brought football to an almost complete halt almost immediately. A quarter of a century earlier, the Football League had played on for a season after the declaration was made, and they were roundly chastised for doing so. This time around, They closed down with three games played, and wouldn't start again for seven years. Much of non-league football did the same, but not all of it. The Southern League, Western League, Cheshire County League, Northern League and Teesside League all played on throughout the 1939-40 season to some extent or other, though more or less all of them mothballed at its end, with smaller regional competitions being set up to replace them until things could get back to normal again. The Southern League's 1939-40 season was extremely truncated. Divided into an eastern section of five clubs and a western section of eight, not all fixtures were completed, with Chelmsford City winning the eastern section despite still having one game left to play. The western section was won by Lovells Athletic and after they played a 3-3 draw in the Championship Decider, the two clubs were declared joint champions of the Southern League. The next 30 years of non-league football would be years of boom followed by slow decline and eventually changes that would streamline at least the very top end of the non-league game. The amateur ethos would broadly come to an end, but not before it had grabbed considerable headlines first. On next week's episode of this series we'll be telling you the story of the tournament that would die with the FA's ending of the distinction between professional and amateur players in 1974. Next week on Strength in Depth, it's the story of the FA Amateur
0: Cup. Thank you for listening to this 200% podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We go to each other and grow up